0: Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take what for some of us is uh, very familiar and make it fresh and breathe uh, new life in it, uh, not for the sake of um, uh, our fancy, uh, but because of your Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, we know that you're active among us, uh, that though we can't see you with our eyes, um that you're present with us through your holy spirit and we know that you're especially near us uh when your word is made central and when we are with your people so lord i pray uh that this child this wonderful child uh, would be made real to our senses do this we ask for your glory amen uh i'm not much for tabloids uh, in fact i've never bought one before um And uh, now that we go to Aldi, mostly, uh, they're not really there. Uh, But I do remember that um, going to places, uh, going to grocery stores, going to Walmart, and seeing uh, tabloid after tabloid about the royal family, and it always kind of baffled me. Why is it? Why is it that uh, the British royal family is the fascination of Americans? You see their clothing choices. Uh, They drive the fashion blogs, or at least so I'm told. their major life events uh, garner millions of Americans to view them. Um, this is crazy. Seventeen million people, Americans, Americans, viewed uh, Diana and Charles's wedding in 1981. Twenty-three million Americans viewed William and Kate's wedding. Maybe you were one of them. Um, Thirty-three million people viewed Diana's funeral. Um, the Crown, we watched it the first few episodes and it got weird, um, but uh, The Crown on Netflix, it's been an enormous hit. But why are Americans so fascinated with another country's monarchs? I think it's a fair question, and I think there's lots of answers to it, but I think one of those answers is that I think we're fascinated and obsessed with fairy tales. We grew up watching Disney movies, we grew up reading fairy tale books. And then the British royal family represents for us a, a real life fairy tale, one that we can follow and one that we can live out vicariously. Perhaps there's a desire within us to escape our current situation, that we want to look at these beautiful people, these happy couples, these young children, these families forming. It's just so nice. And it gives us respite from the pain in our own lives. We see wealth, and we see status, and we see fame, and these things are very alluring to us because we know deep down that we're average at best, and so their unattainable life is so intriguing. So do you see that desire to escape your life and connect with someone else's life within you? Now, maybe it's not the royal family. Maybe you've had your nose up, kind of like I did all week. Oh, I'm not into the royal family. Uh, But is it, um, are you into sports that you can vicariously live in the victory of your team? Maybe it's your kids. If they win in life, it covers the pain of the felt lack of accomplishment in your own. I think that's part of what's going on at Christmas, too. We get nostalgic about Christmas. We want to escape to the Christmas of our childhood that's painted over all the tough things of our childhood. We want to escape this reality into an alternate reality where our family actually does get along. We want to escape to a reality of a perfectly adorned home and a flawless Christmas card. We really want to enter into this fairy tale where we cut away the mundane and we cut away the pain and we embrace a myth. So how do we stay grounded? How do we champion the smallness of our lives? Well, this is where our passage uh, is here to help us. Uh, So let's read Luke um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word of the Lord. You, God. Could you see uh, Charlie Brown? Is that what you were picturing uh, there in Luke 2? Uh, at least I did just now. Um, all right. So I got two things tonight. The first is the importance of smallness, verses 1 to 5, and the choice of smallness in verses 6 and 7. Uh, the, the choice. or or the importance of smallness, and then the choice of smallness. So let's go with the the, the first one, the importance of smallness. You've got these two small people, Mary and Joseph, and you've got this other really big person, Caesar Augustus. And there's a problem that's going on here. Uh, There's been a a prophecy, one that we heard earlier from Micah chapter 5, that said that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. The problem is, is that the one who's going to bear the Messiah, is in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth and Bethlehem, they're not right next door to each other. This isn't, don't picture Lexington and Nicholasville or Lexington and Georgetown. Uh, This is, um, they're 90 miles apart. And 90 miles apart back in the first century might as well have been a coast-to-coast journey because it would take about the same amount of time as it does us to drive a car from one coast to the other. And so how is God going to remain faithful to the promise of Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, the town where David grew up? And the king, who is the Messiah, is going to come from David's line. So how is he going to get him to Bethlehem? Well, God comes up with a very unorthodox plan, one that I certainly would have come up with. If I were given, uh, if God said, hey, Marsh, you're going to come up with a plan of how do you get uh, Mary Joseph uh, with the baby to Bethlehem from Nazareth, I probably would have said, well, you know, I, I think I'd have that priest there in Nazareth, you know, the, the, where the, at the synagogue, you know, where uh, Mary and Joseph go Saturday in, which is the Sabbath day, week in and week out. I'd probably have that priest preach on Micah chapter 5. I, I'd, I'd make sure that Joseph and Mary, that they were going to be in attendance. I'd make sure that Joseph and Mary were well rested. I'd make sure they were in a really good state of mind so that when they heard Micah chapter 5, that they would properly apply it. And if they were to properly apply it, then they would choose to mosey on down to Bethlehem so that Micah 5.2 would be fulfilled. But God takes a very different route, doesn't he? What God decides to do is to put it on the heart of Caesar Augustus to call for a census to make sure that every person who's a part of the Roman Empire would register in his hometown. If they were to register, then they could be taxed. That was was Caesar Augustus' motivation. And Caesar Augustus isn't just some random person. that he, he really is. To be Caesar is to be king. So he was king of the Roman Empire. He was the most powerful person in the world at the time. And it just so happened that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was from Bethlehem. So he was going to have to go there. So it wasn't Micah chapter 5 that made Joseph and Mary go there. What made them go there was this pagan ruler. So what God is doing is that he's leveraging even the most powerful person in the world, even though he's a pagan, to get these two little people, Mary and Joseph, to where they needed to go. Have you ever felt little? Have you ever felt insignificant? It'd be easy to do so. You know, there's seven and a half billion people in the world. Then you start looking around and it's easy to feel little and insignificant when you see the headlines. You see headlines like these major shifts in politics. You see these large-scale economic and social movements. You see these outstanding individuals doing amazing things. And then you look at yourself and you say, well, I'm just one of seven and a half billion people in the world. And I'm just a little person who lives in nowhere Kentucky. Yet, what this text tells us in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, is that God can take these massive political forces without even these forces knowing it and leverage them to accomplish his purpose in small people. Small people like Mary and Joseph, small people like you and like me. But go back. Go back to it just so happened. It just so happened that the earthly father of Jesus was from Bethlehem. And it just so happened that the call for census happened when Mary was super duper pregnant. It just so happened. There's lots of it just so happens in the Bible. One of them is Joseph, not Joseph we see here, but Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. If you read Genesis, Genesis chapters 37 through 50, I recommend that you do so, you would see that it just so happened should have been Joseph's middle name. Everything that happened to that guy was, it just so happened. He was in the perfect place at the perfect time, all the time. I can't give every detail, but one of them was, is that uh, he ended up climbing up to be essentially the vice president of Egypt. Now, he was from Israel. He makes his way down to Egypt because his brothers sell him into slavery. And through a really winding, strange, uh, again, unorthodox way of doing things, God makes him vice president. And God, when he is vice president, God makes him, gives him a dream. And the dream says that, uh, that there's going to be a famine that's going to come. And in preparation for the famine, Joseph was to make sure that Egypt grew fields and fields and fields and fields of grain so they could harvest them and then store them so that when the famine came, that the people of Egypt would have something to eat. And said the famine did come, and it came all across the Middle East. And Joseph's brothers who live up in Israel with their dad don't have any food, and they hear Egypt does have food, and when they have to come down from Israel to Egypt to get the food, and you know who they had to face in order to get the food, don't you? Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery that they probably thought was dead, now he's in charge of of, of, of all the food that they need. And that's where the restoration of their relationship begins, and that's how God begins to accomplish his purposes. It just so happened that he became vice president. What about Ruth? Remember, we looked at Ruth this summer. And Ruth, it just so happened that Naomi, when they went back to Naomi's homeland, that Naomi was married to a landowner who was single, who would be able to provide Ruth with work so that she could have money and food. And so that she might get married to Boaz, Naomi's relative, to turn around the destitution of their family. It just so happened. See, what God is doing is he's always working behind the scenes. And it made me think about how we got here to Grace Baptist. In the fall of, not of this year, not in the fall of 18, but the fall of 17, it was really obvious that we were going to have to find a new place for church. We needed a new building. Our former building, the Thompson Morgan House, just didn't hold us anymore. We didn't know what to do. And while we didn't know what to do, I got a phone call uh, from a man, a man who goes here to Grace, and he asked me what I thought about our church coming to grace at some point in the near future. And I asked him, how in the world did you know? I haven't talked to you in years. How, how did you know that we needed space? And he said, my son just so happens to go to your church. And he said he can't ever find a seat. <laughs> Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. So where does it seem that God's faithfulness is going to come up short in your life? Where do you see a a major gap between what God desires to happen and your ability to pull it off? Maybe it's your electric bill. How in the world is your electric bill going to get paid so that it doesn't get turned off? How are you going to be able to Keep from spending your money all on yourself and so you can stay out of debt and so you can be generous with your money? Seems impossible. How are you gonna stay faithful with your sexuality when your desires are assaulting you at every turn? How is a good friend or a family member going to come to faith when for years they've shown no interest in Jesus whatsoever? See, when you face these gaps. When you come face to face with your smallness, that's exactly when you're going to want to escape to the British royal family. When you get in touch with your smallness, that's when you're going to want to hit the social media feeds, when you're going to want to escape into the world of sports. But, brother and sister, resist the urge, take heart. God is sovereignly superintending the circumstances of the whole world and leveraging them for his purposes in your life. God is a big God, and he is for little people. If he can get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, days before Jesus is born, when Mary's eight plus months pregnant, he can work in your life too he can fill in the gap. There's a certain importance of being small in the kingdom of God. That's what we see in verses 1 to 5. And then in verses 6 and 7 you see the choice of smallness. The choice of smallness. Now here you have God orchestrating the events of history with, uh, uh, with Caesar Augustus and the census. If he can do that and if he is indeed coming into the world, wouldn't you expect God to choose to come in some sort of fanfare and formality and to come in splendor? The Son of God, the the coming king, the most important person in all of history, even more important than Caesar Augustus, he's coming. So wouldn't you expect his birth to be spectacular? Well, again, doing my little royal research this week, I, I came across a video a video I found on YouTube of all places, and it um, was it was of, Princess, it was of uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles right after the birth of Prince William, who was married to Kate Middleton. And it happened in 1982, so the video's old, you can tell. And when you see the video, you've got people hanging out the windows from around the hospital where they're walking out the front doors. People in the hospitals and the buildings around the hospital are hanging out trying to get their eyes on Prince William. You've got people who've climbed up to the top of fences trying to get their eyes on Prince William. You've got people four deep along the streets to see Prince William. It looks like a parade. But then you've got Jesus and he comes and he comes in a small rural village. He comes to poor parents. He wore the most basic of all clothing. And then he sleeps in an animal's feeding trough. The circumstances of his birth are so basic, they're so humble that it's really hard to appreciate just who it is that's born here. See, most regal figures they're, they come in this kind of ceremony, this celebration, like Prince William did in 1982. But Jesus' birth is as average as it comes. And in verses 6 and 7, there's barely any details. You don't know how many pounds or how many ounces he weighs. You don't know how long he is. You don't know the details of the scene. All you have is a mother, a father, a child, and a feeding trough. It's so very simple. It's this staggering paradox, isn't it? You would think that if God so rules the world that that he can leverage empire-wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, that he could surely do better than a feeding trough for his son. But that's the whole thing. This isn't a question of what God could do. It's what he chooses to do. Think about the life of Jesus. He could have been born into a wealthy family from a respectable place. He could have turned a stone into bread at his temptation. He could have called 10,000 angels to come to his aid when he's praying in agony at the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have come down off the cross and saved himself. But again, it's not a question of what God can do. It's what he chooses to do. And what God chooses to do in the birth of his son is to become downwardly mobile. Jesus is always choosing to go lower, and lower and lower. Why? Why? Well, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 gives us one reason. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reads like this. It says that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. So all of these chosen routes of humility, all of these choices to be small, to be downwardly mobile, they had you in mind. It was for your sake. All the no-vacancy signs that Mary and Joseph that found in Jerusalem, they were intentional. And all the choices that Jesus makes throughout his life to lay down power ended up with him on a cross where he scoffed at, spit on, rejected on, bruised and made to bleed. Friends, it's for your sake, it's for my sake that he chose smallness, that he chose humility. See, Jesus fully identified with us in his humanity, in his incarnation. He loved us by taking our sin at the cross. He gives us life in his resurrection. This is the wondrous news of Jesus, brother and sister. This is the humble story that, again, is not about us, but it includes us. God did not make us to escape into a story where we feel more important than we really are. What he made us for is to enter into a story where the most important person in all of history chooses to be small for our sake. This is the wonder of his love. And his choice to become small translates to me and you. This most humble birth for the most exalted figure ever born shows us that the key value in the kingdom is humility. Isn't this a major contrast to the way that we do things? Isn't this a major challenge to our culture where things like self-promotion, portraying your image, building a brand? They're not just acceptable, but these are celebrated phrases. And then you've got this chosen smallness of Jesus that comes up, and it really forces reflection upon God's people. And to do so, I just want to throw out some commonly used phrases, and I want us to reflect on them together. The first one, pursuing excellence. Anybody heard this one, the pursuit of excellence? I've heard this phrase lots of times. I've heard it both in church and ministry settings, and I've heard it in non-church settings i think what it's trying to say is to try your best and present something worthwhile but here's the problem the problem is that we attach an unhealthy pride to what we produce so we become excellence junkies we attach our sense of worth to the kind of applause that our accomplishments can engender now there's nothing wrong with trying your best as long as we're doing so in humility where we see where we see that our gifts and our efforts and our accomplishments, they really say a lot more about God's grace than they do about the worthiness of who we are as individuals. Pursuing excellence. How about this one? Deserve the best. Deserve the best. We say this about food, don't we? We say this about clothes. We say this about education. All things that are important. Yet I wonder if, The heart behind these statements really reveal an elitist mindset. I wonder if it reveals that we've equated our worth to the quality of items that we purchase and consume. Deserve the best. How about this one, Uh, building our brand, building your brand. You might say, come on, Marsh, I don't own a company around here. I'm not a celebrity. I've got no brand to build. Yes, but you have an image. You want to portray an image. Think about it. Have you said things like this, um, uh, that your house says something about you? Don't you take the composite of your social media posts and try to get others to believe that's who you really are? portraying an image. Well, brother and sister, if the Son of God was about building a brand, uh, if He was about self-promotion, He would have received a failing grade. Because at every point, He chooses humility and meekness. All the way from being born in a feeding trough to dying the death of a criminal. See, these are worth reflecting on. Pursuing excellence, deserve the best, building your brand. But if these things are confirmed in your life like they have been mine this week, then there's a need for a reformation. We must go beyond reflection. Maybe it'll show up in your New Year's resolutions. Maybe instead of your New Year's resolutions about being upwardly mobile about achieving something. Maybe they're about being downwardly mobile. Downwardly mobile in how we think about our time and our money and our relationships. Maybe the reformation will come in how you do Christmas next year. I mean, looking at verses 6 and 7, it really does kind of drive you crazy. (laughs) You just want to know more. But Luke chooses this kind of simplicity because he wants you to see all that's there. And all that's there is just Jesus. There's no dressing up of the event. And so does this kind of simplicity, this kind of focus, describe your holiday season? Or does being sentimental and running frantic describe Your holiday season. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Jenna and the girls went and watched Mary Poppins and she said, well, uh, you stay home and watch Brooks while he takes a nap. And I said, you better believe it. (laughs) And um, there's this little book uh, written about 1600 years ago uh, by an early church father. It's called On the Incarnation. It's by a guy named St. Athanasius. He was an Egyptian. He was, called the little, he was called the little dark guy. Here's what he wrote. It was our case that caused Jesus to come down. Our transgression that called out his love for us so that he made help, haste to help us and to appear among us. What that says is that Jesus loves you even in and maybe because of your smallness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love small people. (laughs) Thank you that you're powerful, that you can leverage all things to accomplish your purposes. Lord, I pray you give us hope. And Lord, I pray you give us humility. Uh, Lord, that we would mirror the kind of humility that you lived in. Empower us, we pray. Amen.